afternoon and welcome to this special edition of Discovering Africa. Today we're going to look behind the industry of chocolate and more specifically about the cocoa and the hide and obscure aspects that, the, is, that this industry generates directly and indirectly. Chocolate is one of the most delicious and addictive elements of the planet, but this time it won't be as beautiful and delicious as you guys are, as you guys are used. I'm glad to be accompanied, as always, by my friends and specialists, Oscar Merida and Rock Pan. Good morning, guys. How are you doing today? Good morning, Andrew. Bit tired, but in overall, we are doing well. Thanks. Good morning, buddies. Um, I'm good. I'm so done of everything as usual, but we keep going. We keep going. Okay. Okay. So first of all, before entering into the main issue, one of the most basic things is what is cocoa? So cocoa is the essential ingredient that is needed to produce chocolate. It is originally from the seeds of the cocoa beans of the cocoa fruits, which grow on cocoa trees. Its production is located in the tropical regions around the Ecuador, where the hot and humid climate is well suited for growing these kind of fruits. An interesting fact to mention is that 70% of world's cocoa beans come from four West African countries. Ivory Coast, Ghana, Nigeria, and Cameroon. Indeed. Indeed, guys. Did you know that Ivory Coast and Ghana just by themselves account for the 62% of the total production of cocoa in the entire planet? Just Ivory Coast produces yearly 2 million tons, and Ghana 8,500,000 to tons. Countries such as the US, Netherlands, Japan, uh, are some of the countries with the largest appetite for this commodity. And as the demand of products such as cocoa powder, liquor, or concentrates and baking uh, of the baking and beverage industries on the rise, predictions estimate that 15% uh, growth of the production is expected by 2025. Yes, guys, all this information sounds so cool, but what about the fact that Ivory Coast and Ghana, even though being the biggest producers of the world, just get around 5% of the total revenue that, is in, that this industry produces yearly? How can the industry justify that the 80% of the deforestation that Ivory Coast has suffered from 1980? And how it is possible that in the current times that 1.6 million children are laboring in Ghana and Ivory Coast? We are talking that 38% of children in Ivory Coast and 55% in Ghana are under child labor abuse nowadays. Come on, come on. How can the Western companies work like this? What is the international community and regional governments doing? Indeed, Oscar, it is therefore that we are enlightened to have with us today the expert Mr. Antoine Fontaine from whom we are going to learn more about this topic. Mr. Antoine is the Managing Director of Boys Network, an umbrella organization of NGOs and trade unions working on sustainability in cocoa. He has been involved in sustainable cocoa for 16 years now, and his current job is to monitor what is, work, what is going well and what not, as well as he's doing as much research and advocacy on as possible regarding the cocoa industry. Apart from that, he has also been part of a Netflix documentary called Bitter Chocolate, in which he gives uh, his expert opinion on the problems raised by such an industry. 
Okay. Thank you, Rob, Oscar, for this introduction. And let's welcome Antoine. Good afternoon, Antoine. Well, thanks for having me. Good afternoon, Antoine. Mm -hmm. uh, first question that we would like to ask is to provide a comprehensive contextualization mm -hmm. uh, to our audience. Uh, because since you are an expert in this field, so we want to start by asking you to frame the most singular problems that arise from cocoa production in, in the Ivory Coast. Yep. So when the conversation started around sustainable cocoa, about 20 years ago, the first thing that came to everyone's attention was the issue of child labor and forced child labor, right? And that's been an issue that people have been looking at for about 20, 22 years now. Um, not with a lot of success yet, but you know, that's been one of the key focal points. Um, and as you know, kind of related to the child labor are a bunch of other human rights and labor issues, but that, you know, child labor and the human rights is one of the two big branches of problems of on the cocoa tree. And the other big branch is the environmental side. And so we're looking at issues around deforestation, about 90% of all the trees have been cut in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana. But we're also looking at issues like climate change and climate change and deforestation are very closely linked. And so climate change is hurting West Africa harder than most other parts of the world, among other reasons, because we've cut down all the rainforests there. And rainforests are called rainforests because, well, those forests create rains. They are the rain machines. And when you cut down the rain machines, you take away the rain. And so we're seeing climate change more drastically in West Africa than in most other parts of the world because of deforestation. And then coupled to these, we also see the issues of uh, there's a lot of gold mining taking place, which they call artisanal gold mining, which almost sounds like, hey, cute, it's got its own Instagram account, but it actually, artisanal gold mining is just really horrible, hard work for the people that are working there. It's also really bad for the environment. And then I think besides climate change, deforestation and artisanal gold mining, probably the use of agrochemicals is the fourth big environmental problem. And so you've got human rights with child labor, one big branch, and the environmental challenges with deforestation, the other big branch. But they stand on the tree trunk of farmer poverty. And if we don't solve the problem of farmer poverty, we're not going to solve any of the other problems in the cocoa sector, right? And so whether it's child labor or deforestation or any of these issues, the root causes are the fact that all of these farmers are extremely poor. They've got low productivity. They've got low diversification. Sometimes, sometimes they've got higher diversification. They have a very bad access to infrastructure. So there's often not the right schools. The roads aren't good. Access to market is not there. But probably the biggest driver of all these issues is the fact that the price isn't high enough. You know, and if the price isn't high enough, it doesn't matter how much cocoa you grow, the price still won't be high enough, right? And so um, those really are the issues around farmer poverty where, you know, we can go into more detail there if we want to, but I'll just kind of try to keep it at the at top level there. So you've got these two big branches of human rights and environmental challenges standing on the tree trunk of poverty. 
but that also has its roots, the tree. And those roots are a lack of transparency and accountability, which you could also call corruption, is a real issue around what's happening. <clears throat> but not just corruption, it's also if you don't know where your cocoa is coming from, how do you know it's free from deforestation and child labor, right? So traceability is a big part of that as well. The other thing is, is that when solutions are being developed, usually farmers and local communities aren't involved in the process. And when they do get involved, it's almost at the end. Someone's like, hey, I've got a great idea. Do you agree with me? That's far too late. We need to bring in the local communities at the beginning of the conversation when we're starting the problem analysis, not just to approve the final product, but to be part of it. So uh, linking this uh, one of the last parts that you mentioned about uh, the poverty of the region, uh, We've seen that uh, the chocolate industry produces a huge amount of money, mm -hmm. $150 billion uh, a year. Mm -hmm. And only 2% of it uh, goes uh, to, that, uh, to Ghana and Ivory Coast, to those countries that are producing uh, most of the cocoa in the world. Mm -hmm. Approximately 60% of world's uh, production. Yep. How is this even possible? There's a whole bunch of reasons for that. And the first reason why it's possible is because our global trade system is designed to exploit countries that we used to colonize and now we just exploit them and we take their, we take their resources and we don't pay them or we definitely remuneratively, we don't give them their fair share. Um, and so, you know, all of the companies are Western <laughs> and all of the farmers are Southern. And there's something wrong with that initially. So that's, that's where kind of the conversation starts. And this whole, the whole way that we've set up, not just cocoa, but commodities in general, whether it's coffee or tea or so soy or palm oil or, or cocoa, the whole idea is to grab everything in as big a bulk as possible so that you get it as cheap as possible. The whole system is driven to not remunerate the farmer well. And so there's more than 5 million cocoa farmers in the world. And there might be 20 big chocolate companies and cocoa companies that do all the trading and making of the chocolate companies. There is such a huge disbalance between those two that of course those 20 companies are gonna have so much more power than the farmers. Now, that means that we need to see farmers organize and become better at negotiating higher prices. That is very hard in a world that is dominated by the World Trade Organization that doesn't like any trade barriers, et cetera, et cetera. And so the systems go very deep. And especially if you then once again consider that for the last 40 or 50 years, there's been no legal framework for companies to do the right thing. You know, they, they, they're able to do the right thing if they want to. If they don't want to, that's fine as well. You know, and so in, in, our, in our global extreme neo-capitalist economy, if you can make that much profit, then it's legal and then it's okay. And that's, that's where the problem lies. And so farmers don't have the power and companies do. And so they make a lot of money. And what do you think would be the possible solutions to create a more fair structure? So... I think there are at least three things necessary to change this around. And the first thing that's necessary is for much more 
transparency and accountability of what's happening, both at the producer government level, because they are also a part of the problem very often, as well as at the company level. And so kind of, if we understand who is earning how much money, what, you know, who's being paid how much for what they are doing, where are they sourcing from, et cetera. Um, if that information becomes available, then you can empower local communities to actually hold their leaders accountable, right? So I think transparency and accountability is really important. And not, not too distantly removed from that is also the need for stronger empowerment of local communities, whether it's farmers, whether it's local villages, whether it's people working together in civil society at a local level, but to give them the power to self-organize so that they can then drive the change they need. Often because they're also best at understanding what their biggest problems are. I'm based in the Netherlands and my job is to do research on this, but in the end, the people that live in the local communities are clearly going to be much more um, well-placed to understand what their challenges are and to come up with first solutions how to solve that. And so besides transparency and accountability, we really need an empowerment of voices from the communities themselves. And I think the third thing that we need to solve this is we need legislation that holds the power in check, right? Because you can have an empowered local communities. You can have transparency and accountability. But if you still make everything voluntary, there will always still be companies out there willing to exploit people and planet for their own profit. And so therefore we also need rules to basically say, no guys, this is the minimum that you have to do, you know? And this is the least you have to do because companies will always try to do the least they can do. <laughs> and that's why you need rules. Thank you so much. So now jumping to the next section, uh, Antoine, we would like to talk more about the social impacts that mm -hmm. the industry of cocoa is having um, in Africa. So the first question is regarding the social impacts, which are the main one, uh, what can be done at the national, regional and international level to tackle such issues? So, so, so the social impact that obviously springs to mind first is child labor, because when you talk about cocoa nowadays in West Africa, people very often associate that directly with child labor. And that's because there's about 1.5, 1.6 million children working in child labor. And so I think it's really important there to differentiate between kids helping out on the farm after school and child labor. Kids helping out on the farm after school, doing stuff that is appropriate to their age, that is not child labor. That is technically called light work or child work. And that's fine. That's not what we're talking about. When we talk about child labor, we're talking about things that are not appropriate for their age, that get in the way of their school or that get in their way of their ability to be a child. So these are already clearly, you know, you, you start going down a, a very complex slope of problems. But almost all of these 1.6 million children are not just under something called child labor, but under something what is technically called the worst forms of child labor. And that's not an exaggeration, that's a legal term. And what we mean with the worst forms of child labor is that these children are doing really dangerous work. 
So they're using tools they shouldn't be using. They're using agrochemicals and they, or they don't have protective clothing or they have to work hours that are far too long for their age or they have to carry bags that are like far too heavy for their age. Now, who decides what is dangerous? That's not somebody in Geneva at the ILO or UNICEF or in, in Washington or in New York or Brussels that decides that, or in your case, in Madrid. We don't, we don't tell Ghana or Cote d'Ivoire what is appropriate. No, that is a nationally defined line. So in Ghana and in Cote d'Ivoire, their governments have definitions around what is and what is not dangerous work within their culture. And so when we talk about the worst forms of child labor, these aren't Western concepts that we force upon Ghana or Cote d'Ivoire. These are actually nationally defined frameworks that are defined in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire themselves. And so this really is the biggest challenge that we find, but also gender inequality is a massive issue um, where women do not have um, the same rights to own land or to work on the land. Women don't often have the same rights to um, because they often also don't get the same level of schooling as their male counterparts, as their brothers. Uh, they are often um, not able to read as well or able to count as well, which means they also don't have access to markets in a way that men do because, you know, that doesn't happen on purpose. It just means if you don't, if you don't know how to read or how to count, it's a lot harder to sell your products at the market and not be, <coughs> not be, uh, um, negatively uh, um, not be screwed over by people on the market, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, um, in, in quite a few cultures in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana, men are allowed to marry more than one wife. And that's the man's choice, not the woman's choice. And so therefore there's also a lot of inequality in the household where often then the woman is, the woman is responsible for earning all the money she needs to earn for her part of the household, et cetera. And so you've got your child labor issues, which are complex. And there's also a, a very complex conversation in Cote d'Ivoire and in Ghana, particularly in Ghana around child labor, because they feel as if it's a Western concept that's being forced upon them. Part of that has got to do with stories that the national government does not tell very clearly. But part of that has to do with the fact that for hundreds of years, Europeans did go to Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire to enslave <laughs> um, the people in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire and to, to take them to the Americas uh, as part of the transatlantic slave labor. You know, the big slave forts are on the southern coast of Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire. And so therefore there's a, there's a very real histo history behind this idea that, wait, you spend hundreds of years enslaving us, exploiting us, then colonizing us, then you leave and now you have the guts to, get, to come and tell us that we're exploiting our people, really? And so I understand where that comes from. And I think that there's a very delicate conversation to be had around child labor and how that feels. Probably outside of the scope of this conversation today though. Okay, so does this mean also, regarding to the child labor, we're gonna speak in that for a moment. Does mm -hmm. it mean that the implemented policies that uh, by the companies and governments have failed? Um, so 20 years ago, the cocoa sector promised to end child labor in cocoa by 2006. 
that promise has not been met. So in that context, they have completely failed. <laughs> um, but maybe that promise was just one that they could never have made in the first place because kind of ending child labor in five years time is a tricky thing. But the fact of the matter is they didn't try very hard at all those first five years. <laughs> they gave some NGO, they started in Switzerland a couple of million and said, please solve our problem for us. They didn't do their best, not for a very long time. Now, we're 20 years down the conversation. And by now, I think we can say that some of the interventions work to some extent. And so there are programs out there that can reduce child labor by probably about 30% over a period of three to four years. That is actually, if you look at child labor percent reduction percentages, that's not bad at all. That's quite effective. And if you look at the data and the numbers around child labor, it depends on how you count. How many children are there in child labor in COCO? Now, a lot more than 20 years ago. But the reason for that is that a lot more cocoa is being grown than 20 years ago. And so more cocoa, more children working. If you look at the percentage of children versus the amount of cocoa, well, that's actually going down. If you look at the amount of hours that children are working every week, that's going down. If you look at the amount of dangerous things that they are doing every week, that's going down too. So it depends on how you count. So there, there is... There is some, there is good news in the data, but you have to look for it. But none of that good news denies the fact that there are more children working in child labor, growing cocoa now than 20 years ago, which means we have got absolutely no reason at all to sit back and think, fine, we've solved it. We completely haven't. <laughs> and um, I think the you know, a 30% reduction in a program is great, but the only way you're gonna get the other 70% is if you work on poverty. And we're not working on alleviating poverty yet. And that's where the, I think that if we want to solve child labor, we're going to have to solve farmer poverty. And if we wanna solve farmer poverty, we're gonna to have to find ways to pay them a fair price for their cocoa. And we are not talking about that yet. Thank you, Antoine. Um, I have one remaining question regarding mm -hmm. the social impacts, and it's the following. So we have seen how the cocoa supply chain in Ivory Coast has been established as a pyramidal structure. Mm -hmm. Farmers are placed in the bottom, and there are many intermediates before the cocoa is uh, exported to international markets. Mm -hmm. So as always, the farmers are the ones uh, most damaged. So what structural mechanisms are needed to change this dynamic? There are quite a few things that need to happen. <laughs> and I've, you know, I've referred to some of these already where I've said, look, we need legislation of multinationals. We need full traceability of supply chains and transparency in there. Um, we need higher prices is also a clear issue of that. Um, we also need to look at what is the role of the local governance, right? Um, because they are responsible for making sure there are enough 
schools, that there is a proper infrastructure, that there are roads, that there is access to market. They also need to make sure that there is a freedom of association and that farmers can work together to get higher prices and better deals through better collective bargaining, etc. They need to be transparent in how they're spending their tax money. Um, and this often doesn't happen because corruption is a real issue there. So there's a lot of different issues that need to come in there, but then we're only talking about the practicalities. Underneath there, there is also a real role for governments where it comes to policies. And with that, I mean, we, Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire are net importers of food, but they're agricultural nations. They shouldn't be importers of food. They should be growing their own food structures and exporting at the same time, which means you need policies, you need rural development policies that look at the strengthening of the countrysides there to become much more economically viable and whole um, regions that actually take care of themselves and are able to export rather than to just be completely dependent on commodity markets where they need to sell to the export and are dependent on price fluctuations for their foreign income. And so I think that we really need to see rural development policies at a government level that come up with some real long-term structural solutions. And we're not seeing those yet either. And so there's some real challenges there. Okay, thank you so much, sir. Uh, now, um, after my colleagues, uh, we have tackled like more like an economical branch, uh, and then Andrea will talk about more like the social branch and the impacts. <laughs> and now uh, we would like to focus on the environmental branch, the environmental impacts. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, last year, the, the European Union passed a new law that they ban uh, the, the and buying products from productions that they are doing uh, rainforest and damaging the environment as such. So um, regarding international strategies and besides the EU Commission strategy, strategy that I just mentioned, do you know any other international strategy to tackle the damaging impacts of the cocoa industry? So let's first talk about deforestation. Um, I think that that some of the other environmental challenges specifically around gold mining, uh, et cetera, is far out, and logging, that, that is far outside of the remits of the cocoa sector. It's very hard to find joint strategies there. But on deforestation, there's something called the Cocoa and Forest Initiative, which was set up by the Prince of Wales, Prince Charles, bringing together the whole cocoa sector to try to come to promises to st stop and reduce deforestation and actually rejuvenate and give land back to rewilding, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the CFI process has been going on for about six or seven years now. There was one year where we did see a reduction of a strong reduction of, de of deforestation in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, but that that was one one off. It's actually it's still going up. And so that doesn't seem to be working particularly well. Also, because in the end, it needs to be coupled with national strategies and national traceability. And so where it comes to deforestation, the the, the real trick with deforestation is you need to know where the cocoa comes from. And if you do not know where the cocoa comes from, then you have no idea whether or not it is contributing to deforestation. 
<laughs> particularly the part of the supply chain that is not traceable, that's where the biggest problems are. Because <laughs> usually if it's traceable, then you can say, oh, it's traceable, see, we can trace this, it's fine. It's the stuff that you can't trace that you need to be very worried about. And so kind of these traceability initiatives are very important. Now, the government has promised in both Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana to have these mapping systems and they're still not there, although every time they say they're almost there, but we're not. Now, two years ago, a bunch of NGOs under the heading of Mighty Earth started their own traceability system. And so now actually the best traceability program is a website created by a bunch of NGOs and data geeks. From the industry themselves, I find that there's still far too little movement and effective interventions. Okay, so uh, as you mentioned, uh, accountability, mm. transparency, and the quality of institution of uh, the regional governments mm -hmm. play a big role, no? Yes. Okay, so, and the other question that we would like to mention is, uh, well, we tackle a bit the surface of the problems in the issues of rainforest. Between 20 and 30% of the cocoa produced in Ivory Coast mm -hmm. is produced illegally. Mm -hmm. And we have seen an 80% of reduction of wild forests since the 80s. Yep. Therefore, um, going deeper into, into this issue, uh, would you say that uh, this is part to the illegal production or that the regulated production, um, mainly the Western companies and other regional companies, um, have also a say on this matter? And in any case, what kind of actions could the government take the local governments uh, to manage this complex situation? So, as I was saying, you, you need to have traceability. You need to have a GPS outline of every farm. That sounds complex, but it isn't. Geomapping geo is the easiest thing you can do. And so you need this geolocation and the technology needed to do that is also not very complex. What makes geolocation complex is the land rights because you can walk around with this wherever you want, but how do you prove that that is actually your plot, right? That's where things become a little bit more complex. And that's where you need to have this data on a year by year basis, because then you can say, hey, look, the, the, the numbers of cocoa that you're coming out of your land are really weird because they don't, th that doesn't align. And so kind of the integrity of your data, you can use that way. So that's one thing that needs to happen is we need traceability, geolocation down to farm level. But what we also need is local enforcement. And so you can't just approve um, the fact that someone has actually deforested. You need to then intervene when you find out and you need to do something about it. But you also need to do something about it in a way that respects human rights. Because almost all of this deforestation isn't being done by a large multinational. It's not someone that works for Mars or someone that works for Nestle or someone that works for Hershey that has cut these trees down. It is a small, very poor farmer that doesn't have any options in his life. And so therefore, if you wanna do something about this, part of the solution is once again, poverty alleviation. The biggest challenge in deforestation is poverty. <laughs> and so that's where interventions are not just traceability, but also 
living income for cocoa farmers is part of the solution there. Bringing women in on board and giving them equal land rights is part of the solution. And so things become quite complex at some point, but you really need to have this variety of interventions necessary, national policies and enforcement, traceability, poverty alleviation, quite a few other things, but those three are the very big building blocks there. Then it's a really holistic problem that we can see, and depending where you focus your attention, mm -hmm. can be a, a, like a consequence or a, a root cause then. Exactly. Okay. Antoine, thank you so much for the previous questions answered. Uh, now we would like to conclude this interview by uh, doing two more questions. The first one, um, we would like to know your opinion about the future prospects that uh, this issue may take in the future. And we want to know also if you think that there will, will be any actually an improvement or it will be difficult to achieve improvements on this issue? If I thought that we couldn't improve it, then I wouldn't be doing this for 16 years. <laughs> um, I have seen a lot of things change in the last 16 years that I've been doing this. Um, what I haven't seen change very much is that the farmers are still poor, the kids are still working and the trees are still being cut down. Now, in the end, those are the things you really want to change. But yeah, I believe it's possible. And I believe that actually, if we can't do this in cocoa, then I don't think we're going to be able to do it anywhere because cocoa is, there's only a couple of countries that are highly relevant to this conversation. There's only a couple of companies that are highly relevant to this conversation. It's a luxury good. It's not as if it's like a prime um, necessity in life, even though my daughters would tell me otherwise, nobody needs to have chocolate. It's not like you have to eat and you have to drink. You don't have to have chocolate. And so it's a luxury good, it's highly concentrated. There's a lot of conversations around what needs to be done. If we cannot solve it in cocoa, I don't see us solving it anywhere. All on the interview, we've uh, heard about uh, many solutions proposed uh, to be tackled from a government perspective or from uh, the company's perspective. But my question is, what can a normal citizen like us, like the audience mm -hmm. that uh, is listening to us, uh, do to help these people working in uh, new cocoa farming? What actions can these people take? Yeah, so the first thing you can do is a lot of people look at what you can do as a consumer, so what you buy. Um, and yes, that can help. So buy fair, fairly traded chocolate and stuff where you know kind of, hey, farmers are getting a decent income for that. Now, I would probably say that um, in Spain, that's hard to find. Most chocolate is not properly fairly traded also because if you look at the certification systems of rainforest and fair trade their standard systems don't really provide a lot of less poverty or less child labor or less deforestation than uncertified cocoa now fair trade does have a system around living income reference prices but they can't find any customers to use that on yet and so in spain as a consumer your options are not very big 
which means that I think in Spain, your options as a citizen become important. And so who you vote for, whether or not you write letters to your politicians asking them to put in place laws that hold companies accountable, or writing to the companies and say, hey guys, I don't think, you know, I want you guys to do this differently. And in fact, I remember 14, 15 years ago, um, I once did uh, the very first, I've been doing this for 16 years. And after about two years of running campaigns against chocolate companies, Nestle reached out to me and they said, we want to come and meet you guys and talk to you about what we're doing on child labor and cocoa. And we were a small organization in the Netherlands, right? We didn't do very much, but you know, the mighty Nestle wanted, they sent two people from Switzerland to meet with us. <laughs> and this was great. And so they were sitting in the room with us. And this lady from Nestle started explaining to me that they got letters from all across the world, right? And we worked for a small organization that had a few different offices. She said, we're getting letters from Australia. We're getting letters from England, from the Netherlands, from Belgium, from Spain. I was like, Spain? We didn't have anybody in Spain. We didn't have offices in Spain. We weren't running campaigns in Spain. Why would you mention Spain? And then I remembered that about five months earlier, I had done a guest lecture at a high school via Zoom like this, but with a bunch of high school kids uh, in Barcelona. And what they had done as a class is they decided to write Nestle to say that they wanted Nestle to stop in child labor. One class in Barcelona writes a letter to Nestle. Two months later, somebody at the headquarters in Spain, because they actually wrote to Nestle Spain, they didn't write to Nestle Switzerland, which is where the headquarters is. Everybody buys chocolate, everybody sends tweets, etc. But very few people actually send letters to companies. Very few people actually send letters to their politicians. So if you really want to know where you can make the biggest impact, start writing letters and start getting involved because there are far too few people in this world that do get involved. And so actually, you might always think, oh, we're only a very small person. Well, there's not a lot of people that do that kind of stuff. And so when you do that, all of a sudden, your, your footprint on impact increases drastically. And so just this one high school in Barcelona, for me, has been a story that I tell people for the last 14, 15 years, that you don't have to be with a lot of people to be heard, because far too few people actually try to be heard. So I think that's probably the main thing you can do. Reach out to the people that have power, whether that's companies or governments, and tell them what policies you want them to start doing. And if enough people do that, they actually might start doing that. Okay, thank you, Antoine. Um, well, if my colleagues do not want to add anything else to this interview, um, I think it's been so, so, so um, productive. We have learned a lot from you. I think the audience is gonna be so grateful from listening uh, from such a distinguished um, guy like you. And 
if you want to say something to the audience that is going to listen to you at this podcast, if you want to give any recommendation to our audience uh, regarding this problem, this is your opportunity. And thank you for our part one more time. I think I think my last story about a school in Spain is probably as good a way to end this conversation as anything for a, a podcast for people in Spain. So Amazing, yeah. good luck, guys. Thank you. It's been real rising to you. Thank you so much for your time. So after this insightful interview of our expert at Plantfontaine, we could extract some conclusions. The first one has to do with the unfair trade relationship that the center, especially those few multinational companies, have with the periphery. In this case, Ivory Coast and Ghana Farmers. The center are the ones who have the ultimate decision on the cocoa prices. So the farmers are, in the end, at the expenses of these few multinationals. Indeed, we could link this structural problem with the huge poverty rate that the region has, being the first one, a cause, and an effect of the lack of financial resources that the farmers have. This last one has, in turn, another effect, 1.6 million of children working in West African cocoa farms a very big issue that needs to be tackled, as emphasized by Antoine. Yeah, uh, for me, the game center of this issue is regarding transparency and the quality of institutions dealing with this matter. People is not aware of what is behind every piece of chocolate whenever they buy it. Uh, and as our expert Antoine has explained, when buying chocolate, it is so difficult to determine if we are contributing to all the casualties that the East industry is producing, because there isn't any label or indicator that lets you know which companies work in a sustainable way and which don't. Also, international organizations, as well as regional ones, must start acting on the ground demanding explanations and making public to the world these working methods that companies take. Recently, what Ghana and Ivory Coast need to achieve is to build the necessary infrastructure to process the raw cocoa to the final chocolate, chocolate product, so as to supply the whole world with, with these final products and keep the most of the revenue where it belongs, in Africa. Completely agree with you, colleagues. And regarding my environmental branch, it is clear that deforestation of rainforests is exacerbating the effects of climate change in the region. The area is becoming increasingly drier, affecting the population as well as the wildlife. Since it is a holistic issue with many variables affecting at the same time, as my colleagues have just mentioned, the environmental problem cannot be solved independently. Socioeconomic relations must be tackled too in order to reduce as well the environmental impacts of this intensive industry. The 80% of deforestation cannot be reverted. However, new plans and policies of reforestation can be applied now and in the future by local, uh, regional and international institutions to heal the countryside of Ghana and Ivory Coast especially. So to conclude, it has been really insightful interview where we learned the obscure part of the cocoa industry. How is it damaging the societies of Ivory Coast and Ghana? This unfair relation between North and South and how a so desired and popular product uh, around the whole globe 
uh, is damaging so much uh, local populations, especially in Ghana and Ivory Coast. Yeah, indeed, it has been an insightful program. I hope the audience has learned as much as we have learned. And I hope that uh, regarding all the recommendations that Antoine gave us individually, we are able to fight together against this industry for the fairness of the cocoa industry. Thank you, Oscar. Thank you, Rob, for being here today. Thank you, just one little thing, as Antoine has mentioned, uh, get involved, get involved with all this issue and take awareness. I think this is the most useful thing that we as uh, normal citizens of this world could do. So thank you very much uh, to all our audience. And we wait you here for our next podcast. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.